Let us pray. O Lord, our God, you light our lamp and enlighten our darkness. Your way is perfect and your word always proves true. You are a shield for all who take refuge in you. Enlighten us now by the power of your spirit that we may know and keep your word. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may now be seated. Our scripture reading is found in Isaiah chapter 12, verses 1 to 6. Isaiah chapter 12, verses 1 to 6. So as we anticipate to celebrate the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ next Sunday, Pastor Bill has taken a break from his series on on Mark so that we could turn to some important uh, Christmas passages to really uh, set our hearts to think about the true meaning of Christmas, right? Not, Not what the culture thinks about Christmas, but what the Scriptures reveal to the culture and to the world about Christmas. And as we think about the first coming of Jesus, it's really the event that changes everything, isn't it? It sets in motion the beginning of cosmic renewal. God's people in creation under the curse has now the hope of being restored to new life. And so we'll see how the prophet Isaiah saw in his vision the anticipation of that Christmas day and the future. That really it's a day of rejoicing together, together with the saints in the latter days set in motion, set in motion towards the ultimate restoration of God's people and the whole creation. That it's a day of great comfort that God's people in all generations need to believe and cherish in the midst of this present evil age. And so from Isaiah chapter 12, verses 1 to 6, people of God, hear now God's holy word. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and I will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And you will say in that day, Give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Thus far, the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Long before we read in Luke's gospel the words of Mary's song of praise, When she was told she would bear the Son of God, singing, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Long before the angels would sing right after the birth of Jesus, Glory to God in the highest, peace on earth to those whom God is pleased. And long before the shepherds saw Jesus who praised God and told others, long before all of that, we see that this Christmas celebration with God's people 
just bursting into joyful songs of praise, was already foretold by the prophet Isaiah more than 700 years before his birth. That's the picture that we see in Isaiah chapter 12, which is a hymn of thanksgiving. It's similar to a psalm of thanksgiving. Isaiah heard and saw that day of celebration down through the corridor of redemptive history. And God gave Isaiah many prophetic visions. Many were oracles of judgment and how the future would look like. But within them, what else did he reveal? He revealed Israel's future hope of renewal, especially at a time when Israel needed to hear that there was still hope for a decaying nation. And he recorded these visions in the 8th century BC during a time when Judah was facing the imminent threat of Babylonian captivity. God's judgment to the nation will come through Babylonian exile. They have broken the national covenant. They are deep in their spiritual decay, and so judgment is upon them. And so if you're broadly familiar with Israel's dark history, you're left wondering what hope is left for a nation so set in their rebellious ways and so addicted to idolatry. And in the same way, what hope do all of us have unless there is a change of heart? Unless there is a change of heart brought about by a Redeemer. Brought about by a Redeemer who is the only one great enough to transform our hearts. And this is why Isaiah was appointed not only to reveal God's judgment... God's judgment to all who follow in the path of destruction, but also to reveal that future hope that only God can accomplish. And so in one of his visions is a vision of that Christmas celebration, celebration in Isaiah chapter 12 where the Holy One of Israel will finally dwell in the midst of His people forever. And what would that day look like? What do we see? we see that it would be a day of exceeding joy, right? We read in verse 1, You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, that you have comforted me. You are my salvation. You are my strength and my song. Shout and sing for joy. And beloved, that's precisely what we see in the joyful responses of God's people surrounding the birth of Christ. It was a day of celebration. It was a day of rejoicing. And to look back at that Christmas day, we too must pause. We too must ponder in our hearts, in our minds, the significance of His first coming. When God became man and how that changes everything. And so in a nutshell, we see in Isaiah chapter 12 that This truth, in a nutshell, that since Christ is the anticipated hope and joy for God's people, we must receive Him with joy, praising Him, that we may tell others of His marvelous deeds. And we can see that in three ways, in the way we receive Him and in the way we must respond to Him. First, you are to be comforted. 
First, you are to be comforted. Second, you are to rejoice. And finally, you are to make Him known. You are to be comforted. You are to rejoice. And finally, you are to make Him known. But to get a sense of the structure of this Thanksgiving hymn, most commentators identify two sections. The first section, uh, verses 1 to 3, is the first half that begins there, in that day you will say, right there, and it, it addresses an individual's reception of salvation. We don't know who's being addressed, but no doubt is a believer. Well, the second half we see in verses 4 to 6 repeats the refrain like the first section, in that day you will say. But this time, notice here, we don't see in our English translations that you in Hebrew is now in the plural. That's, that's because Isaiah is now addressing the covenant community. He, he's saying in that day, all of God's people will say these words. And then they're followed by a series of commands and imperatives, exhorting each other to give thanks, to proclaim, to sing for joy. That's how the structure is laid out with these two sections in mind, the first addressing the worshiping believer while the second addresses the whole community to worship with, with one heart and with one voice. And so the first encouraging truth we can think about in this Thanksgiving hymn is the encouragement that you are to be comforted. You are to be comforted. Isn't that what we need? To be truly comforted in life and in death. And we see that there are several aspects to our comfort in verses 1 to 2, where Isaiah announces this is what the recipient on that, of that comfort is going to say on that special day, right? In that day, you will say, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, right? He's giving thanks not to anyone else, but to whom? To the Lord, it's followed by the reason he gives thanks to God. He says, I give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away. You have comforted me. Beloved, real comfort is found in the truth that God's wrath has been thwarted. God's wrath has been pacified. It has been diverted away from this sinner when in reality the anger of God, the wrath of God, is what we all rightfully deserve. And that's what we call His mercy. His mercy extended to us by not treating us what we deserve, which is the holy wrath of God against us because why? Because of our sin. But this still begs the question. If God is a holy God and that He must punish all sin... Why here? Why is God's wrath suddenly turned away here? It seems we're not given a reason, but, this his, but that His anger was just simply turned away. How did this happen? You know, especially considering that Isaiah was writing in the context of Judah's relentless sin. Because throughout the book, Isaiah seems to convey that God's wrath against His people is impossible to be thwarted. That's what it seems. Looking back at chapter 4, verse 24, chapter 5, verse 24 and following, Isaiah charges Judah, 
says there, he, he says there, they have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Then in verse 25, for all this his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. See that? Not only is this judgment against Judah in the south, but it's against Israel in the north and the surrounding pagan nations. But really, in a universal sense, we are all subject to God's wrath against sin. Yet, beloved, the, the beauty and the mystery of what God demonstrates in the gospel, right, is that He is both just and loving. He is, just, he is both just and merciful. And, and prior to this Thanksgiving hymn, Isaiah personally experienced the mercy of God when he could have received the wrath of God. And what happened? So I want us to turn to that scene when he was in the temple, just a few pages back in Isaiah chapter 6. In Isaiah chapter 6, starting from verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, And this is Hosea speaking. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple, and above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of Him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. This this was a terrifying situation to be in. Isaiah is in the presence of Almighty God, the Holy One. This terrified him because he immediately sensed his unworthiness to be in His holy presence, knowing that He could drop dead any moment. In verse 5, His only response was, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, Notice he confesses his sinfulness to the core. Woe is me, for I am totally depraved in the midst of a depraved people. But then, right when he, his, when, right when he fears his destruction by the Lord, the Lord, out of his grace and mercy, comforts him. Right? We see he comforts him through the seraphim. What the seraphim does next in verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Beloved, that's wonderful, isn't it? That is amazing grace right there. Isaiah was the unworthy recipient of God's mercy through his redemptive act when the burning coal touched his lips. Right? He didn't deserve it. 
but simply receive the mercy of God. And what did it do there? It, it, it took his guilt away and his sins atoned for once and for all. And, and notice where the, bur- the burning coal came from, right? It, it came from the altar. The, the same altar where the blood of the unblemished lambs was shed for sins. The lamb who became the substitute for the sinner to bear God's wrath on his behalf. And beloved, what does this point to? It points us to Christ. It's a wonderful picture of what Christ, the Lamb of God, has accomplished for us on the cross. That as the suffering servant in Isaiah chapter 53 bore our griefs and carried our sorrows, he's like a lamb who willingly bore the full weight of God's wrath on our behalf. And so Isaiah's prophetic visions, as his visions develop from this glorious encounter in chapter 6, the Lord will gradually shape in his visions the picture of the Messiah, the picture of the Messiah who would do exactly that, that his name would be Emmanuel, God with us, in chapter 7. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace in chapter 9, and the branch from the stump of Jesse in chapter 11 who would bear fruit to bring the consummation of the new kingdom. And that's why our passage as a hymn of thanksgiving in chapter 12 is really a response to these promises. Bursting forth in praise, knowing that Isaiah saw in that day the Messiah's arrival in God's people singing, Praise to you, O Lord, for your anger turned away, for you have comforted me. Amen. And so, beloved, in realizing how unworthy we are to receive His grace, we can trust in Him who comforts us, who extends His mercy upon us in our distress. But not only do we see that we are to be comforted because His anger was turned away, but we are to be comforted by the fact that He is our Deliverer. And because He has proven to be Israel's Deliverer, He can be trusted to take care of you in the midst of whatever adversities in life. In verse 2, the worshiper sings, Behold, like look at this, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust, and I will not be afraid. I will not fear. Isn't that how the Lord comforted Joshua and his people before entering Canaan, right? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. The Lord your God is Emmanuel wherever he takes you, right? Jesus himself said, fear not, little flock. Or let not your hearts be troubled. Peace I give to you. Do not be afraid. And then we're also comforted by the truth that He is powerful. We read, for the Lord God is my strength and my song, and He has become my salvation. And most commentators rightly identify this phrase from the Exodus deliverance in Exodus 15. From that song that was sang right after Yahweh parted the Red Sea. 
and when he destroyed the Egyptians uh, chasing Israel after they crossed to the other side. And so as Israel looked back at the Red Sea, now settled in place and saw the dead Egyptians at the seashore, we hear Moses and the people singing in Exodus 15. They sing, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Then in verse 2, the same phrase used in Isaiah chapter 12, the Lord is my strength and my song. And he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. So, beloved, not only are we to have assurance that God is capable of saving, but the very truth that he is exclusively your salvation. You belong to him. And because you belong to him, He will save you from trouble, even from the enemy of death, because both body and soul belong to whom? Both body and soul belong to whom? But to Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all our sins and delivered us from the tyranny of the devil. And that should give you great comfort to alleviate all your fears and to remove all your doubts. But not only does Isaiah see that on that day, God's people will sing about their great comfort in the Lord, he also sees the joy. He also sees the joy that God's salvation brings, right? There is great happiness. There is celebration. And that's the second truth in which you are to rejoice. You are to rejoice. And why? Because there is the promise of His fountain of grace to sustain us. His grace never runs dry. In verse 3, we read, With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. See that? That's a picture of of an endless source of water. It's a significant salvation imagery that God brings to the minds of His people again and again in Scripture. Isaiah expounds this vision of endless flowing water in chapter 41, verses 17 to 18. He says, When the poor and needy seek water, there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst. I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. Just think, think about if you went hiking in the burning wilderness and you got lost and you ran out of water. In the burning wilderness, having water is a matter of life and death. Remember Israel in the wilderness at Meribah, right? They complained to Moses of dying from thirst and God heard them. And what did God tell Moses to do but strike the rock and from the rock, what happened? It gushed forth running water so that they will live. But not only does God supply water to quench our physical thirst, He ultimately supplies our spiritual thirst, right? Our greatest need in the wilderness of life. Because that imagery of Meribah ultimately pointed to Christ when the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 10.4 says that all drank the same spiritual drink, drink, 
for they drank from the spiritual rock, spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was who? The rock was Christ. Beloved, Jesus is our living rock who supplies us with living water from the wells of salvation. He, he comforts the Samaritan woman at the well that whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of, welling, of water welling up to eternal life. And so isn't that a wonderful promise that should cause us to rejoice? It should cause us to, to rejoice because in reality, how often are we tempted to despair life's troubles? How often are we faced with the many circumstances that disappoint us? When we fail in the Christian life, when people hurt us, when we're going through sickness, losing a job, broken relationships, when we're facing death, to whom do we turn to to meet our spiritual needs? Beloved, Jesus says, in this life you will have trouble. That's the truth. In this life, you will have trouble. But he says, but take heart, I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world. Come, right? He says, come, drink from the waters that I will give you, not from the world, not from your own reservoir, not from anyone else, but from me. And when you come to me to rest in that fountain of grace, you will have joy. You will be blessed. You will be happy, not in the worldly sense, but with the joy of salvation, no matter what you're going through. But not only does Isaiah see in that day that his people are to be comforted, not only are they to rejoice because of his fountain of grace that sustains us, but finally he sees that you are to make him known. You are to make Him known. That in making Him known, that the covenant community will sing together in the second section of this hymn in verses 4 to 6. They will continue to sing and give thanks. And out of their gratitude, they, they are compelled to proclaim Him, to make His deeds known and to exalt His name. And most importantly, we are to make Him known because the Holy One of Israel is brought closer to His people, right? He is now dwelling among His people. We read in verse 6, Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. In Isaiah's time, in Isaiah's time in Israel's history, the, the relationship with Yahweh and Israel was often restricted by the requirement to be ritually holy. To, to enter the most holy place could mean death if the high priest isn't ritually clean. But guess what, beloved, in the fullness of time, Isaiah saw in that day the peace between the Holy One and His people in holy communion. He has broken the veil. The Holy One of Israel has turned the hearts of His people and made them holy so that fellowship could never be broken. And who is the Holy One of Israel? Who is that? It's none other than our Lord Jesus Christ who brought us peace between God and His people. And once He has brought us peace, reconciling us to the Father, what will we be willing to do? 
what will be how what will we be doing but exhorting each other to do but to make him known right to make him known wherever his name is not known to tell others about the gospel to tell others that Jesus Christ came on Christmas day to be born to save us to die on the cross and to defeat death to forgive us our sins to justify us to make us holy and to resurrect our bodies to live with him in the new heavens and the new earth that's good news that's good news that we are to tell people to tell to ourselves that's why in verse 4 Isaiah sees we will say in that day and to each other and the whole world give thanks to the lord call upon his name or better translated proclaim his name make known his deeds among the peoples proclaim that his name is exalted sing praises to the lord for he has done gloriously let this be made known in all the earth so beloved in closing let us be left with the assurance that since christ is our only hope and joy may we receive him with joy and thanksgiving knowing that he is the reason for the se- for reason for the season of christmas that as we look back at redemptive history from isaiah's vision of that christmas celebration may we have great comfort from our great god may our joy in christ be rekindled may our songs of praise forever exalt him and that we will forever have peace in him who is our emmanuel Not only is he our Emmanuel, he is our wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, imprisoned of peace. And may we rest beloved in that hope forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty God, we praise you and thank you for setting our hearts to think about the true meaning of Christmas as Isaiah saw it back in his day. looking forward to the coming of Christ that he brings thank you that because of the first coming of Jesus we can truly celebrate what it means for our salvation to be comforted to have joy to live in grateful obedience and tell others about him we pray now by your spirit to continue to guide us to help us understand your truth to help walk in your ways that pleases you Be with us and grant us grace in our time of trouble. We bless your name and give you all the glory and honor. For it's in Jesus' name.